Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're both very excited today, Alex, who we got on today. Oh, we have got our original number one History Hack fan on with us today. So Allegra Jordan, um, at the very beginning, when nobody knew who we were on the other side of the pond, was going around recruiting people for us in America. Uh, she, We got James Scott because of her. We got her brother, John Jordan, because of her. Uh, she has done so much work for us. And one of our very favourite episodes of all time, Mark Peterson, who came on to talk about Martin Luther King, was Allegra's debate school um, partner in high school. Uh, so we are absolutely thrilled to have her here today to talk about some of her own research. So I've known Allegra since 2014 because she did some work on World War One, and what she did was write a novel and it was inspired by a mysterious Latin memorial at Harvard University which she attended um, and it was written in Latin and we're going to find out why because it was not supposed to be read. Um, but what Allegra does now is deal in reconciliation and that's what we're going to talk about so we're going to start with world war one and then talk our way through to the kind through history and through what she does today in terms of like it's very topical like the african-american history week that we did uh, last week talking about um how you use history to learn from it and move forward but hi allegra let's just say hello first hi alex hi lena i'm so honored to be here uh, and just want to say thank you thank you for providing so much exciting history during the pandemic lockdowns. It's just been phenomenal. Your wit, wisdom, care, um, zingers, they all come through and they bring a lot of uh, intellectual stimulation, but also joy to us over here on, in America. Oh, I think we're up to about 40% of our listenership is from the United States now, which we never imagined happening. Um, oh, really? And undoubtedly, oh, sorry, did you not know that? <laughs> I did not know that. It's 35, 40% now is in the US, um, which is epic for us. And we have conquered all 50 states now. Um, quite some time ago so yeah we're and also all the states in Canada as well but we would not be getting any traction in North America if not for Allegra and all the work she did for us at the very beginning so thank you absolutely uh too much <laughs> praise but uh very honored to be able to support you too anytime I write to people and say hey um these people are doing a great job they're so excited it gives me status among the uh armchair historians hey this is so neat <laughs> Excellent. Um, but let's start. Let's talk about your stuff. Uh, what was happening 100 years ago in Boston that made you spend 20 years writing about it? So the uh, Boston of 100 years ago was very different from the Boston of today, um, except in one aspect. It was a very international culture around Harvard University. And so Harvard had a great Germanic population, uh, quite intellectual group uh, willing to um, build part of Harvard and be part of its uh, intellectual life. In Boston, which was at that time a very parochial place, very uh, censorship and morality oriented. Um, there was also a German composer, uh, I'm sorry, conductor, um, Karl Muck, and he led the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And as World War I uh, was starting in 1914, 
there became in the United States, which was not part of the conflict at that point, um, a great outpouring of anti-Germanic harassment. And uh, much like we've seen in the United States over the, the centuries, we've seen anti-Islam, anti-fill-in-the-blank uh, you know, Japanese. At this point, it was anti-Germanic sentiment. And uh, professors at Harvard, uh, conductors, a lot of the musicians, the great musicians in America at that point were uh, were German. Uh, they were being rounded up by a 22-year-old J. Edgar Hoover, who was put in charge of immigration, and rounded up and put in prison camps. Harvard University, this international gem of uh, of working together, if you were male, if you were female, you were relegated to a ghetto. Uh, that was okay, but it wasn't the same male experience. But the the experience of Harvard was international, and that uh, identification of the anti-German sentiment started blowing apart that camaraderie that was there. And what we found was that even though America was not involved, the classes virtually, you know, pretty much emptied um, because the Americans wanted to go to war on behalf of the British or the French. They were not allowed to fight, so a lot of them joined the Red Cross. Some of them joined the French Foreign Legion. Whatever they could do to be part of that experience of war, which people thought in America at that point was going to be short, um, they wanted to do that. Uh, there was a, a very famous case at Harvard of an Englishman, um, Mr. Henry Dayton Simpson, who went to Eton, um, and he fled uh, in the dead of night uh, to go to war. Now, he was British. He was able to become a test uh, pilot um, and died um, died in England testing, testing. Um, I think he was 20 when he was testing yep. flights there. So He's um, the reason we know each other, isn't he? <laughs> Yes, yes, you were doing some <laughs> remarkable work. And what happened in America was that uh, we did not, of course, get into the war until much, much later. And yet uh, Harvard uh, and Boston, uh, not so much, but more of Harvard, bore the brunt of what was happening. It was a very engaged university at that point, very military-oriented. So they were helping organize uh, war preparation and engaged in a way that it had not been, even in the U.S. Civil War, where uh, people at Harvard would pay for other people to fight for them. In this case, in World War I, they wanted to go to war. Now, um, the uh, problem of a community falling apart during war is one that they had experienced before in the Civil War. Uh, Harvard came apart north and south. And the way they rebuilt their community afterwards always uh, made it very clear in that puritanical fashion that Harvard and Massachusetts is known for, that that there was a right and there was a wrong, and they were going to forever commemorate that. But in World War One, America's passions were not the same as Europe's passions about it. It was a war that America got into very late. And what happened at Harvard was we had this almost forgotten conflict by the rest of the country, but at Harvard it was still pretty raw. And the question was, how do we rebuild our community? I had uh, come out of the rural south, a military family, but then in a rural south setting in Selma, Alabama, and thought I knew what memorials were, which was uh, to our guy or to our women um, and not to the other side. And the question at Harvard came up, should we, when we rebuild our community, 
include people who are our enemies and who we believe did wrong, and we do not want to say that right and wrong are the same. So that was the question. And given in the American South, um, things are very things had been very stuck with who we honor, how we remember. Uh, I saw a different aspect of what is possible at Harvard, and I thought this is a story that we need to tell people about so that they have a different uh, data point to consider when looking at their options. So in 1991, you came across a Latin memorial. Why was it in Latin, and what did it inspire you to do? The um, joke at Harvard is if you want nobody to understand what's going on, write it in Latin because nobody can read it. And uh, that was true. So there was uh, in the Harvard Memorial Church, uh, in the very back in a shadowy corner, is a Latin memorial which says uh, that uh, here were four sons of Harvard who died fighting under other flags. And it lists their names. And it is... uh, in the shadows, even if you know that this memorial is there, it's still hard to find in the church. People did not want to know uh, that uh, people did not want um, at Harvard did not want visitors knowing that this existed. There is a magnificent um, travertine panel, gold embossed portico with you know beautiful uh, sentiments and names of the fallen of Harvard uh, English. French, um, you know, uh, British, uh, I'm sorry, British, uh, English, sorry, Uh, British, French, and American. And uh, the Germans are over at another corner, but at least they're there, which was better than had happened in the U.S. Civil War, where Harvard said, only the names of the victors will be on our walls. And if the building ever decides that we're going to allow the losing side to be honored here, the building will revert back to the heirs of its donors. They did not want any reconciliation stone there. And so the Latin memorial was a way of improving the vision for what can happen after a war when you're trying to rebuild a community. See, when you say that, just to compare it to Eton, there is one boy who died with the German army. Um, he was naturalised British. His dad took British citizenship the day after war broke out because of his Schroeder. So the bank couldn't collapse because of the stock exchange and it would be a nightmare. So the day after war, they stopped processing the father's papers. But he was in Germany and he joined as a reservist like he was supposed to and he died. And the only reference to him, I only found it because I am sad enough and a loser, was reading through the Eton registers and finding um, a notation under his entry that just said died 1915. And I knew he would have been 2021. And I was like, he's died in the war and he has a German name. And I'm pretty sure I know what's happened here. And I managed to dig it out. But there was no thought and there still has been no thought of commemorating in, in the same way that Harvard done, even if they hid it. The passions that are brought up by um, two issues, justice and mercy, have always been with us. And it is just to remember that uh, wars don't just happen, that there is a uh, push uh, behind some of the uh, politics that occurs that leads to horrible death and misery and suffering. And it is just, and we must remember that, 
And yet there is this intimacy of a community um, that is one of the most thrilling things of life. That, that intimacy gives us life. And it's very important in lives. And when you have a community that says, look, if you go past a certain place, we will extirpate your memory, then um, there is a question of what kind of society do you want to be? And a just society has a lot of benefits. A merciful society also has a lot of benefits. And you want to get the best of both and avoid the excesses of either. Let's talk about this in a little bit more detail. Let's explore what is reconciliation. Um, Thank you, Alina. Reconciliation is a process of asking why should I even bother thinking about rebuilding my community and then lamenting. Uh, what happened, um, and lament is very different from unbridled pain. Uh, there is suffering, and suffering is defined as I'm not okay. And you're crying, but you're crying in a productive way. You might have rage, you might break things, you might um, sit in ashes. Uh, it's not a cry to avoid, though. It's a it's a cry in relationship to something out there, and that something out there is for your uh, listeners to define for themselves. But you're you're in not crying out to avoid, and and then after a period of lament, you might or during it, you might have ideas about hope. What does hope look like? And in thinking about that hope, you really need to think about what the larger story is. This is the why bother story. Well, I think that we're moving, as John Lewis said, to beloved community. And what does hope look like in beloved community? And you start finding out that maybe you're not alone, that there are people all over the world who are wrestling with some of the same issues with you. And you start gathering a community around yourself of like-minded people moving to that same place. You then um, have to persevere for the long haul. You have to uh, have some leadership. You know, a lot of us would rather just live our private lives, but we're not given that opportunity once war hits our, our front porches. And in thinking about this process, uh, we must realize that it can be a very long or short process, that it's not one that should be faked um, for expedience sake. And it's only one that works when hearts are truly changed. So it's a, it's a hard process. It's certainly not superficial. And, and when I talk about reconciliation, I, I talk about that process. I often ask people to locate themselves in the process. Uh, there's a woman who just came out with a fabulous book called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent, Isabel Workerson. And I would say that that uh, book, which I read uh, this weekend, is a fantastic lament. It, it is squarely in that tradition of saying, look at our wounds. Look how we've narrated the story so that we're all enslaved by this story, even the perpetrators. And that she doesn't have many solutions in it, but that's okay. There's a place just for flat out lament in this process. And it's a much necessary part of the process. If you don't go through that, you get to do it again. So um, that's what I would consider reconciliation. And how did you explore it when you wrote about World War One and Harvard? Because that memorial spurred you on to write your own book on it, didn't it? Yes. The idea of reconciliation was not in my imagination. Coming to Harvard from the American South and from my own experience of having a horrible tragedy occur, I was a debate champion at college, 
And my debate coach, who was a wonderful man to me in many ways, he murdered my debate partner. He stabbed him 22 times in what was called the crime of the decade in Alabama in the 1980s. And I had this idea for what loyalty was. I had an idea for how you put your life back together. And it was all modeled on the stuck ideas of the American South, that all you're going to ever do is you need to be loyal to the dead, basically bury yourself with them, uh, spend a lot of your time and energy thinking about uh, the people who are no longer with you, and you're not allowed to move forward with your life because that would be disloyal. And that's what I was thinking as a 21-year-old. And I go to Harvard and I say, wait, you know what? Some people move into a more flourishing place. It's not you know, post-war, post-tragedy, where the locus of influence is always the tragedy, the war, the, the bad action. It's reconciliation, redemption, uh, resurrection. These rewards move you uh, to something that's beautiful. And it, it admits very fully that something horrible happened and there should be accountability. There should be um, justice. But there also is justice in the service of rebuilding uh, what Seamus Heaney called a further shore. How can we get to this further shore? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think as well, so you've already mentioned uh, post-tragedy, post-war, and also as well, so you've already mentioned you came obviously from Selma, the same town as Mark, and you went to Harvard, um, that you're talking post-civil rights movement as well. So post-conflict, that doesn't necessarily mean armies going at each other as well. Uh, so you had experienced a number of different ones, but where do you draw the line? Who do you not reconcile with? So reconciliation is not taking a walk up Crazy Maker Mountain. The idea of reconciliation is it can only happen when two parties have hearts that are changed. Uh, many people wish to game the system. They wish for cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call it, grace that they give themselves. They want uh, no consequences of their evil actions. And that is a game. And, and that will just get you, um, you know, uh, pushed back on your heels again. It's not going to be a true type of change of heart. Um, the So I would draw the line with anybody who is uh, just has not shown evidence of being sincere. And even when they are sincere, I'm going to look at data, not their words. Words are quite cheap. And so what actions are they taking that would show that they are have remorse for what they have done? Um, and they don't have to show it all up front. Sometimes there is an intention to listen, perhaps. And then as they hear the lament, they realize, 
and can locate themselves in that story where they have been the perpetrator. And often, you know, victims do themselves and become perpetrators. It's this really nasty cycle that is very difficult to interrupt. It's got a lot of momentum going on. So I would not reconcile um, with white supremacists right now. Uh, in fact, there seem to be no sense of remorse. There seem to only be a sense of, I'm going to wait this out. And that was waiting out the first reconstruction until they could get back in power and reestablish um, slavery by another name, which they did. And then we had the civil rights uh, movement, which led to a second reconstruction, that was the Voting Rights Act, and that's been gutted now. And people are now asking for a third reconstruction, but the people doing that action are not, they're not calling for reconciliation. <laughs> they're calling for truth, which puts us into a place of let's look at the truth. Let's, let's see what boundaries need to be drawn in terms of what kind of society we want to build based on that. So there are uh, many people who I would not reconcile with because I'm not an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I see what you mean. There's got to be some, yeah, like you say, talk is cheap. And especially as well, this is so relevant in America right now, isn't it? Um, that you can you can do a lot of talking and not make any changes, which is what you're saying. You do not, that there's no point. There's also, um, it's not just in the political realm. Uh, I've been through a divorce. I've had friends who've, changed i've changed and each time people change then you get to decide do i want to re-up with this person um so it could just be a, a family member who you're just like you know what we never really got along we never really liked each other so how about if i let you go in peace i don't <laughs> want a relationship with you uh and i and i never did and by the way the evidence indicates that you, you don't want a relationship with me either um and and the idea in reconciliation in part is uh, it, it, the benefits could just be all one-sided and positive. By that, I mean the best people who are advocating in the world for a new vision of what John Lewis called the loved community. Um, and they're all over the world. I've, I've seen, you know, I've seen it in Asia, Europe, um, Africa, South America, Central America, America and Canada, Australia as well. And the idea is that uh, if I can just transform myself, if I can discharge my hate and my anger, which is completely legitimate given what I just experienced, then I can advocate for accountability and just have it be advocating for accountability, not advocating for accountability plus my drama that I bring to it. I, I, I want to advocate in a way that I have a very clean energy. When, when one looked at John Lewis, I'm talking a lot about because I just loved that man. Uh, and for what he did for me and for Mark Peterson and Selma, it was we were the beneficiaries of his amazing humanitarian inclination towards building beloved community. And mm. he looked like that a man who glowed from the inside out. Uh, he, he just was so happy and joyful and radiant. And you don't get to be that way as an 80 year old without discharging a lot of that anger early in your life and, and doing that on a repetitive basis. So, I mean, and there's a hell of a lot of anger for him as well, isn't there? We're talking about a man who was with Martin Luther King in Selma, who witnessed children being blown up and mindless violence and hostility towards himself, who nothing for more than the colour of his skin, and yet he's let all of that hate go. 
Absolutely. And it's just a joy to be around him. Now, it did not make him less fierce in advocating for unconditional voting uh, rights. There's nothing timid or shy or unjust about what he was asking for. He was fierce, but he did it in a way where he could dance at night. He could go to sleep at night. He uh, could laugh. Uh, he's such a joy to be around, and that joy radiated to everybody. It was everybody wanted to be around him because he was such a, a joyful person. And and seeing that as what you can get as a gift uh, that you give yourself of saying, okay, I'm willing to go through this process, and maybe the reconciliation is with an invisible person. They're dead. Um, you know, they, they're they never going to be back in my life because it would be nuts to let them anywhere close to me. Mm. Um, but I would, would like to be like John Lewis. I'd like to be a happy older person, not a an angry older person. Um, I'd like to think about where I can build community. And not everybody is uh, up to the task of, the, of building beloved community. That is social change that is very hard to do. Not everybody's up to the task. I noticed in Selma, some people were pathological. Uh, racism does that to you. It drives you crazy. And if there are people who then be, are crazy as a result, you know, it's, it's not fun to be around pathological people, but it's understandable. Um, but I will not work with pathological people. Uh, there's a, a middle group, um, and they just, they don't care. They just want their private lives. And then there's a small group of people that you can work with. And, and when you get to hang out with them, Oh my gosh, it's like you're living in the, the, with these people with these lives of moral splendor. And it is just like, oh, it's like, you know, putting lots of honey right in my mouth, just eating it. It's so delicious. <laughs> and what evidence can we see from history um, in terms of reconciliation memorials? Uh, there's a good one um, right now in Coventry. Um, so we know that Coventry was horribly bombed. And uh, there's this beautiful statue of reconciliation of a man and a woman crying and, and making a bridge to each other. Um, and, and that's a beautiful one. Uh, in America, we have a, um, a number of memorials, war memorials, where both sides are included. And Yale University includes all of its people on one memorial. Um, and so, and that would be in, especially in the Civil War, uh, North and South. They're just listed by alphabetical order. Uh, not by by the side that they fought for, um, indicating that Yale thinks of themselves as a community with people who have a way to get back into the community after they've transgressed. Um, there is was in Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky, the state of Kentucky, was a place where you had both Union and Confederate um, pockets. And so there, there is a memorial of reconciliation in Kentucky that I know of. There, there are a handful of them. Um, an interesting one that I heard of was that uh, in World War I in France, there were people who had um, erected um, memorials to both sides, like these are the people who died here, and they would have both Germans and French. And as the war went on, you would find people scratching out the other side saying, these are not my comrades in whatever, in, in humanity. They're just, it's beyond me. And I certainly can understand. Uh, I'm At some point, we do not want to 
continue these conversations 500 years from now, um, which are, you know, we're at war, what white supremacists versus uh, black people in the United States. We, we don't want to have that conversation go on for another 400 years. And so at some point we do have to find out how do we reverse engineer uh, peace? And you have like, so you retrospectively, um, as you say, have got to try and do that because this is the field you work in now. So how are you going to do that? What is the way forward? The the reconciliation work that I started doing about 10 years ago was the Duke, with, with the Duke uh, University Center for Reconciliation. And they helped me understand some of the big questions in life and why some people are willing to change and why they're not. And how to think about the reconciliation process, which I explained earlier. And another part was that they introduced me to a number of reconcilers from around the world who are secretaries and, and housewives and, uh, you know, just a seminary student who found themselves in these horrific conditions and said, how do we create a, a beloved community space instead of just repeating the hatred of, of the past, which got us to this very uh, difficult place right now. And, and these, the, the people that I mentioned, the seminarian, uh, housewife, secretary, they've now won like the United Nations Human Rights Prize for going into Uganda and South Sudan and, and Burundi and, and saying, let us build a new we. Um, and then of course the work in Selma has been uh, something that I've been involved with. I, I think that there's a couple things. One is that I do it through writing. I have a reconciliation poetry website. And this uh, language that we need to describe the indescribable is helpful. So the reconciliation website has been up for um, several years now, since 2013. It's been visited by about 100 people from 146 countries. And the idea was just give people language. They will know where they are in their process. But if you can tell them what lament is and what hope is, and hope is something that may be all around them if they just know what to look for. And to encourage their hearts with, with these kind of words and language, uh, to know that they're not alone. Uh, I think that that is a good service uh, to people. It's a very passive service on my part. You can read a book or read a website. Uh, there's been some more active service in finding leaders, indigenous leaders in different places to support. So uh, there's a wonderful um, uh, composer in Japan who wrote a lament for the death of the last Korean princess. And that took me back because I said, Yoko, uh, Sato is her name, said, Yoko, I thought that Japanese and Koreans hated each other. And, uh, in fact, many of them have told me that they do. And she said, no, it's, it, there's an underground movement that this is, is enough. We need to get back together. We need to stop hating each other. And so, um, part of the, uh, my work is to identify, um, great leaders and support them. And sometimes they're artists. Sometimes they're, um, uh, just a, a nun overlooked in Uganda who is on the front lines of COVID at one of the large hospitals there. And, and just, uh, but she is trying to build a peace village to show another way of living. And so it's a very grassroots effort on my part. A lot of it's individual. Um, but um, that, that's what I'm trying to do to help change things. Now on a, on a macro level, I'm, uh, I was trained at Harvard business school. So um, I have a, a number of, organization skills that help nonprofits 
um, and for profits uh, build uh, a sound business uh, such that they can then advocate from a place of knowing that their books are are good. They're not going to find something nasty in an audit. They understand what their costs are. They understand how much things will cost, how to hire people, uh, a number of business things that helps them um, amplify their voice because um, their houses are in order. So uh, it's a it's a bit of a, a all-encompassing life work where wherever I can find somebody who's doing something to help move the narrative forward, let's help them. Uh, but it shouldn't be me. Um, in, in part, in Selma, I support Mark Peterson. He is a fantastic man. Uh, he, who can be a leader that I can't be because I am white. He is black. I must have uh, enough awareness to take myself out of the equation. It's it's not about me. It's about helping that community feel better. So helping indigenous leaders is always the way to go. He needs to be president. I'm sorry, but he absolutely 100% needs to be president of the United States one day. I, I completely agree. I would support that 100%. It's now you've just got to talk him into it. Okay, yeah, good luck. <laughs> Legra, go on. Yeah, I just, I, I try to uh, talk him into a number of things, but Mark has a very um, specific idea of how he wants to see beloved community come about, and it's through empowering uh, entrepreneurs along the, the uh, Black Belt highways. He's outstanding, and so are you. Thank you so much for coming on to tell us all about how you've used your history background um, to try and do something mad. I'm sorry, but like you ask people what they want to do when you grow up, and to say, I want the whole world to stop hating each other, wow, what an ambition. Um, and like you say, doing it on a large-scale level and a small level, uh, I admire your patience and your ambition for it because I, I don't think I could do it. <laughs> well, here's here's why I would support you, and I... Uh, you are willing to talk with people and to, to actually tell them the truth, to say, I don't agree with this. I let them come back at you, and I find that remarkable. It's it, your, your voice, Alina's voice, voices that should be amplified because you're willing to, let's say, let's be curious about who we are. And in that curiosity, we find each other's humanity. There, there's nobody uh, that should be uh, beyond accountability in terms of like the evilness of history. These are, you know, banal, evil, stupid people, but they're humans. Therefore, they're not beyond accountability. And that's part of your exploration. But part of your other exploration is look at these great humans. What, what amazing and magnificent accomplishments many people do. Um, and we're, we're both humans, the evil people and the, and the very good people, they're, they're humans. So this is a great spectrum of humanity that you and Alina introduce us to. Um, and also there's that tiny little bit where we just laugh at people's private parts and medical ailments as well. We <laughs> did admit it. that we're not as highbrow as you're making out. We are guilty <laughs> of being rather silly on occasion. <laughs> we, we, we have, yeah, a good poop joke goes a long way, you know. <laughs> so. And your brother tells them great. So we can <laughs> like wait to have him back too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Join us on Monday when Alan Malpass will be with us talking all about British treatment of German prisoners of war in World War II. This one was so interesting because it's something that I'd just not really thought about before and you can find all out, all about how they were treated, uh, how that changed over the course of the war and how they went about going home afterwards. 
We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.